private sector is very quick to adopt these things, and it's very successful for us. Where we're, we get to really big, life-changing endeavors with this technology is when the public sector steps up and starts to do it. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here today with Tim Henschel, who is the CEO of Hotel Planner. Now, Hotel Planner was founded back in 2003 it's a travel tech company and um, absolutely all over you know technology leading edge stuff so tim welcome it's lovely to see you thank you for having me jeanette um excited to be on yeah fantastic well we are going to be talking all about entrepreneurship business starting scaling you as a, a fantastic human being and however it's really helped you with your journey um so yeah we're gonna we're gonna keep it real tim aren't we that's what we're gonna do i like it yeah sounds good <laughs> excellent so tim do you want to just tell us a little bit about about hotel planner because you started the business sure. back in, in 2003 and i'm really interested whether you consider your business a travel company or a tech company so maybe just expand a little bit on that as a theme uh, given where you started and where you are now oh uh, sure so i'll take the second half first i definitely think we're 50 50 travel and tech we've always been that way uh the ownership of the company is built on that. Uh, I'm a co-founder. I bring the travel side, um, third generation hotelier. My grandfather owned hotels. My father owned, owned hotels. Uh, my mother was one of the first uh, entrepreneurs in travel spaces, started a large tour operation company out of California back in the 70s. So we you know, grew up in a hospitality entrepreneurship family. My co-founder, John Prince, who is 50% owner in the company. He came from IBM, uh, senior software engineer, uh, top of his class from Northeastern in computer science. So we team up to make a good team of, uh, you know, my large uh, knowledge of the hospitality industry from a degree in, at Cornell University and the Hotel School of Management uh, and his background in technology. And so we've grown the company to be 50-50 in tech and travel the whole time. So yeah, we're a travel tech company. Uh, as for the first part of the question of, you know, how did we get our start? It was, you know, in kind of a, a different time, but similar to today's time in some ways. We, I graduated from Cornell and did a stint in banking as Cornelians will uh, in Wall Street, working for a bank called Commonwealth Associates that did pipes, which is private interest in public equity. And it was actually specialized in investing back in 2001, 2002 in, in travel, I mean, in technology companies. Uh, and then you had the dot-com bubble burst back then, and that uh, disrupted uh, that company's, uh, that bank's business model. Uh, so I moved from New York back to California uh, after being an analyst and, and looking at business plans uh, all day long, wrote my own and, and raised some friends and family money for a hotel planner. And, you know, luckily got my business partner, John Prince, to agree to come on full time as well and leave his uh, computer uh, engineering job uh, and come over and start full time for a hotel planner. So that, that's how we came about uh, starting hotel planner. And it was a good time uh, to start because, you know, travel 
tech with the names of Priceline and Expedia and Hotels.com at the time um, made it through the dot-com bubble burst quite well. And so the industry was hungry for what could tech do to help uh, sell more hotel rooms online. Uh, it was a growing market segment. It was a successful growing market segment uh, at that time. And we came at it from an angle for group hotel bookings. So we've always looked at niches in the industry that we can automate and use technology to make it simpler for, for people. So that's where the name Hotel Planner came from. It's, it's meeting planner, event planner, wedding planner, but at hotels, so it's Hotel Planner. And then since then, of course, we've expanded into more niches around the industry uh, that we can automate as a tech company and integrate AI. And uh, the most successful project right now is our first of its kind gig uh, automated call center which is backed with chat GBT and, and machine learning, which routes the calls. And basically it allows anybody to work from home and pick the hours they wanna work and uh, any calls on our platform for booking individual or group hotel rooms are routed to these agents. So they have a localized knowledge but also the backing of AI to help with any answers. And it's all voice over IP. So all of that's automated. So uh, it's very seamless in the answering. And, you know, question answer part of the call calls. Fantastic. So, so really leading edge then on the tech, you know, because there's a lot of noise around chat GPT. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it destroying jobs? Is it actually, you know, creating a whole new industry in it in its own right? So what, do, I mean, obviously you're using it in the business, you know, day in, day out now, which is, which means you've adopted it very fast, really. And um, so what's been the success parts of that, would you say, Tim? And what have been some of the watch outs for you as an organization, you know, given that there is uh, there's always pros and cons, right? I mean, honestly, it's been mostly pro for us. Uh, we've been having 100 percent year over year growth for the last uh, three years. We've been breaking records. Um, we just came out of the top 60 uh, travel company in the world in Travel Weekly. Uh, we'll be breaking new records in other, uh, you know, financial media reporting that's going to be coming out soon. Um, I can't talk about it obviously now because it's strict confidentiality until it's released, but look for our name and you'll see, you know, the kind of numbers we're posting up are pretty amazing. And I attribute that to the technology. Uh, I'm actually giving a, uh, a keynote speech to a banking conference in Miami coming up and it's going to be about AI and the public and private sector and say, you know, of course the private sector is very quick to adopt and, and uh, adopt these things. And, uh, and it's very successful for us where we we get to really big life changing, you know, um, uh, endeavors with this technology is when the public sector, you know, steps up and starts to do it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the public sector is the slowest adopters. Uh, and that could make a huge impact in our in a positive way to our day to day lives. But, you know, they, they want to always pump the brakes, uh, saying that they're going to be cautious. I, I honestly think it just does more harm than good. Because, the bad players are always going to use it and are currently using it against us every day. So we might as well adopt it and use it for positive good to offset what's happening on a negative basis. And that's where government just needs to get out of the way of that as fast as possible. I mean, I'm disappointed we don't have autonomous driving vehicles already. Um, but, yeah. you know, the big 
big reason we don't have that is, you know, the government wants to protect jobs. And, you know, think of the, you know, they, they claim that they want to keep us safe, right? Well, what would be safer than getting any, you know, older drivers, drunk drivers, inebriated drivers in any way off the roads uh, as quickly as possible? And that's what, you know, uh, autonomous driving vehicles would do for us quickly. And now with AI, this is going to get better and better every every day. Um, you know, it, it could rapidly improve if you had real life uh, simulations every single day. I mean, even if you just pick certain cities to, you know, uh, turn to ADV zones where, you know, traffic doesn't travel more than 30 to 35 miles per hour. So it, it would be very safe. Why aren't we doing that in these areas that have a ton of traffic and we can alleviate traffic problems that way? Uh, you know, they say they want to push towards environmental issues and we could have obviously much more battery, uh, you know, electronic vehicles mm -hmm. going around at all times if we had ADV because they could pick up people and drop people off and then quickly go and recharge. Uh, you know, one of the big reasons people just don't grab EVs is because they don't want to be inconvenienced with the large, long charging times. But if you have ADVs constantly traveling around, picking people up, dropping people off, you eliminate that. So better safety, better for the environment. We don't have those. Why? Because government's just trying to protect jobs. And so that's what I love about the private sector is I can move forward with positive change on a daily basis without... Um, I don't know, just the, I guess you could say uh, the conflict of interest of, of also trying to protect certain things about the old economy or the old way of doing things, which obviously if we don't move forward and uh, we would still be living in the feudal system and, uh, and sharecropping, you know, um, I mean, we went through you know, we had the the people who pushed back against the industrial age. Industrial age had its, its problems, of course. Uh, you have the blips as the economy and, and humans move on past that. And it's overall, it's a greater net good. And now we have the next, you know, wave to get this information technology uh, age that could do so much for uh, humanity in terms of, you know, cleaner living and and safer living and everything else. And it's just unfortunate the government gets in the way. Yeah, so how do you influence them, Tim? And I, you know, I don't disagree with what you're saying. And uh, I think you're right. There's a whole bunch of political stuff going on in the background that causes those blockers to be in the way. But what's the best way to influence policy, uh, do you find, in terms of having a, a strong voice, for, for, in particular, for new technologies like you have? I mean, the media is the, you know, uh, the big check and balance to the other pillars of power in society. So you know, I have a Twitter account and uh, I've noticed when certain things go wrong here, I live in the UK like you do. So, you know, the issues that uh, the UK have, which is no different from the issues that they have in North America as well, you know, failing infrastructure, uh, you know, high energy prices, failing energy grid. Uh, but one example was the house that I just bought was without water because the pipe had burst and they didn't pay, fix it for months. Fresh water, gallons and gallons pouring out a minute, didn't fix it for months. House without water, you know, doing damage to the house. What's going on? Because 
there's just, it's an older system and they don't have enough people to fix fast enough. But I went on to Twitter with a video and showed the water and enough people retweeted fast enough that Thames Water fixed it within 48 hours after. So it shows that public pressure can get, you know, government to do its job if, if you know, the media does the right, you know, thing. Where I find the you know, problems lie is that the media tends to focus on, you know, none of the, the meat and potato issues of day-to-day life, right? They don't talk about the huge potholes that uh, are all over, littered all over the road, popping tires left and right. Uh, here, it, 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 because it's not an, an important story in their mind. You know, they'd rather rehash Brexit for another decade. <laughs> and I think politicians gravitate towards that because then they can get more airtime uh, on TV if they talk about that. And how is that going to help somebody who can't get in to see a GP or a nurse because they're on strike. How is that going to help uh, us because we can't get the train into the city and then small businesses are hurting because there's less foot traffic because the train unit's on strike. How's it going to help the travel industry when we can't get money people on the planes because custom agents are on strike? Uh, I could go on and on, obviously. Uh, where are the politicians on this? Why is everything broken and failing and yet we get nothing? And at the same time, blocking private sector from implementing important technology that we've been working on for the last 20 years that can make significant changes to people's day-to-day lives like I just talked about with ADVs and yet we don't get that instead we get to you know depend on a train system which is half reliable because you got uh, employees that are always on strike so I don't know forgive me for being cynical but um, I, I, I do hope that with you know, uh, media and the digital technology media age, that if the if we all band together to shed lights on this problem that maybe the traditional media has kind of ignored, hopefully we can we can make a change, you know, get politicians back to go into work for this stuff that actually makes a difference to our day-to-day lives. Yeah, no, I know. Listen, it's complex, isn't it? I mean, I started life as a government economist, Tim, back in the day, and I was uh, I was in Whitehall for about two years because I was an eco- I did an economics degree. But um, yeah, the uh, the pace of the civil service wasn't for me, so I jumped into the travel industry pretty pretty early on in my career. And um, yeah, so hey, listen, we could talk about it all day, but listen, let me bring let me bring us back to sort of an earlier stage in your business because you did get approached, didn't you, a couple of years after you set up Hotel Planner by uh, Priceline, who were interested in buying the business back then, weren't they? But you said no. You said no at that time. So talk about that. Um, you know, why did you say no? And are you glad that you said no and you are where you are today? Oh, I mean, absolutely. And they offered uh, some early 20-somethings an unbelievable amount of money. Uh, I heard that some employees over there that were familiar with the deal were shocked that we turned it down. Uh, But we weren't building the business just to turn around and sell the business. It's the same reason we turned down countless VCs and PEs. We pushed to profitability very quickly. Uh, we paid back our, our friends and family investors uh, 21 times on their original investment. We gave equity to our employees and we went to work, you know, so we have a team that's highly motivated and specialized in everything we do. 
And yeah, our main focus is is solving complex problems, like I said. Uh, and, you know, we know that success will come if we do that well uh, and we stay focused on that. So, you know, we never really had to be that PL focused, uh, just as long as we keep profit and we keep no debt on the company, then we cannot just focus on, on doing what we do well, which is, you know, uh, great customer service, great, great product, great technology. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's been the foundation of the company for the 20 years that we've been doing this. Yeah, fantastic. I, I agree with you, Tim. I think if you're really clear on the problem you're solving for the customer, your purpose, why you exist, do things the right way, the money will come. The money will follow because if you have a successful business and you've got all that right discipline in, in place, you're focused on the right things. Actually, you know, you will be successful uh, for sure. And obviously, Hotel Planner is incredibly successful. How big is the business now, Tim? Just give us some of the some of the high level metrics. I appreciate confidentiality. You might not be able to share um, everything, but just to give us an idea of the scale that you've managed to get to after all these. Well, 20 years now, isn't it? Yeah. 20 year anniversary. Sure. Yeah, so we're doing um, between 2.5 million to 3 million in merchant transactions a day right now. Um, we're going to do over a billion dollars in, in gross bookings uh, this year. Uh, that puts us well over 100% growth year over year from last year. Uh, like I said, last three years, 100% year over year growth. And we're going to do it profitably. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're very happy where we are. But right now, we're just focusing on uh, what is, how do we get the same hundred percent growth in 2024? Uh, and, and that is with using a lot of our existing team. Um, so in the same time that we grew revenues by hundred percent, we only added, uh, 10% more uh, employees. So we're very picky about, uh, who we hire and, and how we bring mm -hmm. people on, uh, and how we train them. And we want them to be with us for, for a, a long time. And part of that is, is that we gifted equity to our employees that keeps the employee equity pool going so that we're all working uh, towards the same end goal, which, as you mentioned before, IPO, um, and not because we need cash, you know, when we're kept positive cash flow, we're with no debt company, we're profitable. We don't need uh, to, to IPO for cash, which was one of the reasons we were lucky we got to move away from a bad market. Uh, when the uh, um, IPO market fell apart uh, early last year and because uh, we didn't need, obviously, to move forward uh, to raise funds to cover a big, you know, monthly burn in the company's financials. So but what we want to do, obviously, is allow the general public to have a piece of our growth and uh, also allow our employees, uh, you know, to buy in and uh sell some of their stock, you know, as employees want, because gifting the stock is one thing, but, you know, making it liquidable is another. So that's the main focus for the only reason why we'd really touch the financial industry, uh, because, it, you know, it, obviously they can help, but they can also be quite a hindrance for, uh, you know, executing your vision as a founder uh, and being able to really focus on the tech. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's a totally different beast. You know, I've spent most of my kind of corporate career in listed businesses, you know, FTSE, FTSE 100, FTSE 250. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a totally different thing managing the analysts. Well, you'll know from your background anyway, but, uh, you know, it can be a great thing as well if you're doing it in the right way and for the right reasons, as you say. What's your time frame then, Tim, do you think, for, for um, a successful IPO? You know... We, we want to do it right. Obviously, when we put uh, the wheels in motion for the IPO that we were going to do on the NASDAQ back in 2021, we started, uh, you know, in Q3 of, of 2020, which was a tough year with a COVID year, but we recovered luckily so quickly. I was based in Singapore at the time. I saw the uh, the Black Swan event coming a little bit for, uh, sooner than people who were based in the US or in Europe did. And I was quoted in you know, a lot of media early on warning about it so we could prepare quicker for it. And that allowed us to recover quicker out of it too. So, you know, it was, it was a big scramble to um, pivot from getting all our financials in, in line coming out of, of COVID at the end of 2020. And uh, and then going right into, you know, let's let's go into an IPO situation. So we focused on that until, of course, the market turned south and it went very aggressive. I think everybody expected that uh, small cap, you know, uh, travel tech would get hit by the market downturn. I don't think everybody would have seen how deep the market downturn was going to be to hit the big names like Google and Facebook. Uh uh, yeah, so all of these these companies then had to start looking for more efficiencies and focus more on the bottom line because, of course, uh, investors started stopped focus on growth as much as they, they focused on EBITDA. So that was a switch. Uh, and luckily for us, it's never been a big issue because we've always been profitable. And so always having a positive bottom line is essential in a company that's uh, bootstrapped, as you said, because we have to make money to reinvest in our growth. So that wasn't a big deal for us uh, uh, when the investment community switched to uh, to valuing off of EBITDA. And it was bound to happen anyways, right? All emerging technology yeah. gets, you know, a honeymoon period where it's just like, how big can you make this, this and such? But then eventually you have to be graded on what every other company gets graded on. And so now tech is basically in the same boat as a lot of other companies, but those other companies can't put up triple consistent, triple digit growth numbers um, like, you know, we are too. So I still believe that tech has so much more room to grow. So it still deserves a, uh, a premium evaluation. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. we'll just find out what that is. And I think that's part of the recovery. I think, you know, Tech is a bargain right now. So, you know, if you get a chance to, to buy some, I'd say buy some. Um, I would also say uh, this is not investment advice and all of that after going through that process <laughs> for two years. <laughs> but, absolutely, absolutely. And Tim, so Tim, in terms of that time frame, then that horizon for that IPO that you've got on your kind of roadmap ahead, do you have a fixed time frame, or is it triggered by evaluation that you're looking to achieve? Which, which, which comes first? Which is most important? Timing to get it away as soon as you can, or is it that you're after a number 
and that will be the oh, trigger point for you. Timing, timing, all timing. Everybody talks about market timing, uh, and it's so much more complicated than uh, you could imagine because it takes a year to a year and a half to get live. Uh, There's just so much regulation there. So, you know, to, to be able to get your timing right, you have to start in a bad market because the chances of you seeing a hot market and saying, all right, let's go for it now. And then by the time you actually can get live, the market has changed because it takes you a year to a year and a half, probably longer, actually more like two years. Because the other problem with once you start in a hot market everybody else is going to, which then you just causes yeah. the traffic jam of getting out. So yes, it's a, it's an art. And that's why the people who do it well and been successful, um, you know, get on the cover of magazines and get idolized for that, that stuff all the time, because they somehow seem to time markets where nobody else can. And I mean, for, for me, I, I think that it just requires us to just go back to what our roots, which is just think fundamentals, keep doing what we're doing, and naturally things will come together. Uh, so, yeah, I don't like the idea of forcing anything. Um, so, yeah. We will watch this space with great interest, Tim, when the IPO is going to be sort of, you know, on the radar as well. So um, I think I'm, there'll be a lot of interest. There's going to be a lot of interest given how you've grown the business. And, uh, you know, so I think I'll be watching with great interest as will many other people as well. But Tim, can I take you back a little bit? You know, you said when we started recording the podcast that you were third generation hotelier. Um, and, you know, the hotel game, I've actually been doing a huge amount of work with the core hotel. So I've been advising their executive board and just spent the last few months over in Australia and Singapore doing that. Um, and obviously a massive, massive hotel group, right? 4,000 hotels, you know, um, largest hospitality business in Europe, Asia, Pacific, you know, really huge organization and a great array of brands. But running a travel tech company, it is very different to the hotel hospitality game itself isn't it so you've got that background but it, it is quite different but how much did your early start in life with that third generation of hotel background how much of that has been has been helpful for you in business do you think in terms of the business you're in today well quite quite a bit uh we were owner operator family so you know, in typical owner operator, which, you know, makes up the majority of uh, the properties, hotel properties out there in the world. Mm. Uh, you have all your kids working at the uh, family business the minute that they're old enough to, you know, have an intelligent conversation with anybody. And so, uh, you know, I started around 12 years old, 13 years old. And, you know, by 14, 15 was working front desk. So saw a lot of the pain points of the space of the industry and so then you know went on to Cornell to the hotel school while I was there I was a night auditor while you know playing a sport while also going to classes while being a TA and teaching for microcomputing uh, so not a lot of sleep um, I can actually admit that luckily I'm very decent with numbers so a night audit job the main thing they want you to do is balance the books for the day uh, I got it down to an art where I think I could get it done in 45 minutes, which would take other people two to three hours, which added a couple hours of sleep 
for me. So I was was proud of the fact I was getting paid to sleep, but I only admit that now. <laughs> what is it? Twenty three years later. So, um, yeah, yeah, it, it was a good experience as well as get some income that I needed uh, to get through school and experience. So yeah, I've done almost everything there is to do on the hotel side job uh, wise. And so when I came at uh, doing a uh, hotel planner at a very young age at 22, I had amassed a decade of, of actual hands-on work experience on the hotel level. So it mm. made a big difference. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 you, uh, Timber. You know, I hope you don't mind um, don't mind me me asking this because you were adopted, weren't you? Um, in, from from sort of being how old were you when you actually got adopted, Tim? Because you you've obviously I don't know when your youngest memory is and when you were actually adopted by your by your parents. But what sort of age was that? About five five years old. I mean, yeah, my biological dad is dead, from what I know. Never met him. Don't know that much, and um, I don't know that much about that time in my life at all but from the pieces i've been able to put together i believe it's five or six years old yeah so, yeah okay so i tried to think my earliest memory was probably about four years old i think when i think back to kind of childhood so i guess some of it must have been must have been a bit of a haze but do you remember any of those early years tim yeah it was it was tough because when I adopted, I was adopted by, uh, you know, Noelle Irwin Henschel, who was an entrepreneur at the time, but she was also uh, not married. So she brought in a au pair uh, who I spent a lot of time with in those early years. Uh, so we were living in an apartment in Los Angeles. Uh, and I say we, because I had a, a brother who was a year older and a brother that was a year uh, younger, and we were adopted from uh, the same biological parents. Um, so, you know, we, we were taken from the same biological parents. So we were we're actual brothers, um, biological brothers. And uh, yeah, it was it was a, a very surreal time. We moved around uh, quite a bit, and then uh, Noel met Gordon, who was executive with Hyatt uh, in the Pacific at the time, um, working for Hyatt Hotels in Hawaii, and then they moved out to Hawaii. Uh, so I spent like first, second grade uh, through, what say, fourth grade in Hawaii, fifth grade, and then to move to Monterey, California, where I did uh, the remaining of my years in it. With with some movement around too. I mean, at some point moved back to LA, but um, I just stayed up in Monterey to finish high school, and then went back east to Cornell. So that's yeah, that's a lot of uh, history. My background. Uh, yeah. It's probably not traditional, uh, but yeah, it has definitely shaped me to to who I am and I'd say the main thing that I took away from it is from being an adoptee is you know uh learned a lot from entrepreneurial parents um but never felt uh attached to like a family business or anything so it gave me the freedom to just start my own thing 
Yeah, it's interesting because I was going to ask you that actually, Tim, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, given the, the background, the family background, the hotelier uh, side of things, you know, the, the obvious thing uh, from an outsider looking in would have been continuing the family business, you know, take over the family business rather than start something yourself. Um, but you, you that that was that was never on the cards for you or was that a conscious decision that you made quite early? You wanted to sort of forge your own way and, and kind of, you know, do it on your own, really, with a startup. Uh, yes. I mean, it was, it was, the family dynamics was different, right? We were adopted uh, by a mom that was single at the time. Then she got married. Then they had kids of their own. So, I mean, I guess the best analogy would be uh, it's more like a step, you know, parent situation there where, uh, yeah, I think where it comes to legacy, you're, you, it would, the family business falls more to the biologicals. So, mm. yeah, I didn't, I, I, like I said, I had the freedom to always be independent because of that. Yeah, your mom sounds like an absolute powerhouse of a woman. I mean, you know, to be a single mom, adopt three, three children all at the same time, was it, Tim? Yes. Incredible, right? I mean, incredible. Is your, is your mom still alive, Tim? Your mom and your mom and your, 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 your dad, they're still alive? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, they are. They're living in California. Um yeah, yeah, no, they're doing well. They must be incredibly proud of you. What would they say if I was talking to talking to to Noel and Gordon now? What do you think they would say to me about you? Oh, I, I, I don't know. Probably, hopefully, nice things. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I might have to get their number and give them a call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. No, sure, there's plenty of good stories there. I mean, they've. Uh, uh, accomplished quite a bit I mean, uh, in the 70s starting a first of its kind tour operation company when the u.s didn't have any uh, and then stone pine was one of the um, properties that after uh, gordon was done with hyatt uh, he bought that hotel and it, it became one of the first relay and chateaus in uh in the u.s and it was got a lot of press and I think you can see it was one of the starts to the boutique hotel craze in uh, North America and spread out to have more high-end boutique hotels like they have in Europe. Mm, yeah, fascinating, really fascinating. So you uh, you come from, um, from a great stock in terms of the, you know, the kind of the backstory and really interesting backstory that you've got as well. And, you know, sometimes, Tim, people look at the success of a business leader, a CEO and go, oh, it's all right for you. Everything's amazing. You know, 100 percent growth must be easy. Right. But we know life isn't easy. We know business isn't easy. Um, can you think of the most difficult thing you've had to face it during your kind of career journey, your business journey so far? I would say actually taking the friends and family money uh, in the early days and then getting them their uh, investment money back at a, a great return. Uh, you know, I just remember talking to my business partner, John, after that and said, phew, you know, now we can always go back for Christmas and holidays and not, because <laughs> you're never going to be able to show your face again. If you didn't give a positive return, you end up losing the money. There would be nothing worse. So that was the biggest thing. I think after that, everything became pretty easy. And I mean, we've obviously gone through some pretty tough times, uh, you know, COVID being one of them. 
where it put a huge cash strain on our industry. And so, uh, but luckily we had very little debt. Uh, now, of course, we have zero debt uh, coming out of it. And so we always ran the, the company, like I said, profitably with a little debt. So that made getting through COVID um, easier for us. And I think it comes through those those roots of, of never wanting to owe anybody anything. Mm, okay. Yeah. And, and maybe, yeah, maybe those early, very early years um, of kind of, you know, meant you wanted to to stand on your own two feet to prove you could do it. You know, to to make sure that you didn't let anyone down uh, with the money that you bought, you borrowed rather. And and just Tim, if you're if someone's listening to this and they're thinking about starting a business, now you said you obviously you started two thousand and three post dot com um, kind of bubble bursting, so it wasn't necessarily an easy time to actually start a business. And um, what advice would you give to someone that's thinking about starting a business today? What things should yeah, they so, be doing to, to put themselves in good place? I'm a 100% a big contrarian thinker, right? So anybody who wants to take my advice can, but obviously there's lots of contrarian investors that, you know, do this and I don't know if they perform better or not. But the idea that I've brought up before that by the time you see a trend and you start to move on it, everybody else has. So what you're really in is a bubble. You don't want to be moving in a bubble. So actually starting the company during tougher times uh, is the right time to start a business. It seems counterintuitive, but it is because the end, you're not gonna have as much competition. Uh, people are more interested in innovating when they have to innovate. So you'll get that meeting, you'll get to take that call when you know that business needs to improve revenue or needs something. If times are good, there's no innovation. Why would they? Nobody bothers. So they're like, yeah, I'm making money. I'm, you know, times are good. There's no, there's no reason to take any risk. So that's the tough thing. You know, it sounds like, you know, you think you want it to be doing it when uh, it's good times, good market, uh, everything else. Now where, where it's tougher is it's tougher to raise money usually in a bad, bad market. But if you're bootstrapping, you don't have to worry about raising money. So, I guess I would really give the advice of bootstrap during a bad economy and then life will actually be easier for you as an entrepreneur, but make sure you, you know, obviously you've, you've got at least enough money to make it for, for the first two to three years of operations. Uh, and if you fall short, then figure out a way to get alternative income streams to keep everything going because nobody will believe in you in the first two years. Uh, don't expect to get any deals, to get anything. You can make any money in the first two years. You're very lucky because most, you know, with the huge amount of failures of businesses in the first two years, most people know these numbers and they're they're not going to bet on you because they don't, statistically, they're most likely you're not going to be able to survive. And so they don't want to take that risk. Uh, so once you get to the year three, year four, things really start to take off for you. And that was advice I was giving by entrepreneurs and it turned out to be 100% correct and so now I can repeat it people can take it in but don't bother to do it for six months uh, you know 18 months you're just wasting your time and money unless unless you're actually just doing it to buy some time between jobs and you're trying to pad a resume which I respect actually because you know <laughs> when you're interviewing somebody that has lost their job for whatever reason uh, but they've got something else going on 
uh, it shows that they're not happy just waking up and shopping a resume all day, um, which I like that, you know, it shows you're, you're motivated and you want to keep your skills sharp and your, your network sharp. So yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, it's like, mm, I don't know if I can make this really work long-term or this, that, but Hey, at least you're not wasting your day. So you're putting some, doing something during that time while you're ultimately looking for that next job. Yeah, yeah, great, absolutely great advice. I think you're absolutely right, Tim. You know, I mean, the stats are, you know, of businesses failing in the first two years are incredibly high. But if you've got, as you say, you've not, you've not got yourself into a, a difficult financial position, you've got enough to keep yourself going for the first couple of years. And, you know, and hustle, you have to hustle, don't you, in those early years of starting a business, you know, it's hard, you've got to knock on doors, you've got to be, get ready for the no. You know, and then you're going to get lots of rejections, lots of knockbacks. You've know, got to grow quite a thick skin, I think, to, to be able to, you know, keep going. And so let's talk about resilience, Tim, a little bit. Right. Because you're now you're on a different phase of the business now, obviously. But there must have been a lot of times where things haven't gone so well. Um, and, you've, you know, you've had to bounce back or, you know, just kind of go again. Um, you know, failing, failing is, is part of learning, I always think. But um, sometimes people struggle with it. They, they put it in very negative terms. Um, so how do you, how have you personally sort of kept yourself resilient when you've had knockbacks? Ooh, I don't know. I, I, I don't really look at anything like that. Uh, oof. It's maybe just not the way that companies built or unbuilt. Again, maybe it has something to do with my background. Uh, you know, been knocked around so many times, it doesn't even phase me. It's just like you go out surfing and there's waves and waves will beat you up. That's part of surfing. Really? It's, it's just, you got your good and your bad and you're just trying to get, you know, duck dive the best you can to get under the wave the best you can to get out past where the waves are, are breaking, where you can actually, you know, catch one. And uh, that's, just part of surfing so it's just part of business too uh, uh that makes sense of probably talking to point uh zero one percent of your audience right i like it i like the analogy i think that's cool you need to come down to south wales where we live down in mumbles big surf community down here so um yeah okay. it's pretty, pretty yeah, being pretty from cool hawaii place. i grew up, grew up doing some of that and i do i the analogy popped in my head because it makes the most sense. I mean, business requires being bumped around uh, constantly and uh, by both internal and external forces. And so if you're, if you're not prepared for that or you don't like that, then business is probably not for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And do you ever turn off, Tim? Are you one of these kind of people that is constantly all about business, business, business? Or do you do you ever have any downtime where you kind of regroup and, and just kind of re-energize yourself without work? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I run quite a bit. I've run five marathons. Uh, so long-distance running is very meditative for me. I also uh, play a lot of tennis and got my kids playing competitively now too and so doing some coaching and then still trying to play competitively myself uh, adds to that as well that's uh, you know in my competitive nature uh, so competition is great but that's one thing when I'm playing a tournament uh, in that match everything else is 
you know, I'm not thinking of anything else at the time. So that that's the ultimate meditation. But as far as work, it is 24 seven, uh, 365. And it should be that way. I think if you're going to be a good entrepreneur, um, because you're never going to know when that big idea is going to strike you, you're going to solve that problem. And I have to say, I like to surround myself with people like that. Cause when that, that idea comes, you know, I, I want to bounce and buy a few people. That's one advantage of having a global company. There's always somebody awake. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. And yeah, it keeps you on your toes, but we have to fight burnout. I mean, after 20 years of, of 24, seven, 365, uh, you know, it can become mentally tough, like at a different level, not like, Oh, I'm just tired. Just, you know, your brain's been working a lot for a very long time. So, you know, that just requires always keeping, I think keeping everything fresh and, and challenging yourself to, to come up with new ideas and, and do new things. So yeah, so important, isn't it, that we we kind of look after our mental well being. You know, I mean, you you, you mm-hmm. see it a lot where all of a sudden, you know, someone who can appear to be the strongest, most resilient person in the world can just implode. You know, something can happen, and you know, I think it's it, exercise. I agree with you. I'm not on my game if I've not trained. Uh, I just don't feel it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 as much about the mental side as it is the physical side. You know, I mean, I like to eat and drink Absolutely. as well, man. So it's like a bank account. Yeah. You have to put some. It's about something back in. But um, no, I think that's fantastic. So what's your sport? What's your sport? I like to run as well. I like to run, okay. and I'm, I had I had a knee operation though, Tim. So um, I've, I'm kind of trying to build back my distance and and what have you. I love scuba diving, but I'm a fair weather diver. So you yes. know, I've got my advanced paddy and my nitrox and all of this. In fact, when I was in Australia recently, um, doing some work with a core hotel, so I, I mentioned earlier, we managed to make it out to the Great Barrier Reef and uh, went four days, four days, four nights on a liverboard. So literally, you, all you do is eat, sleep, dive, eat, sleep, dive. That's mm-hmm. it. Four dives a day. So I love diving, but not in the UK because it's too bloody cold. Um, so, I, yeah. I did a little bit of that. I went to Lady Lady Elliot Island, if you know Lady, uh, right on the southern tip of the Great Barrier Reef. And you take a little plane that fits three people because it has a runway on this island that is minuscule. You couldn't believe that it <laughs> lands on it. And then it's like you're you're in like a hostile uh, sleeping situation on bunk beds, but all you do is eat, sleep, scuba. Yeah. 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 Cool. It's it's. It's another world, isn't it? And I find that just like, oh my gosh, you know, you're totally in that moment. It's it's actually it's almost impossible not to be. I think to to travel to be in awe of something that's a great mm. that's greater than than kind of yourself. Um, it's it's a pretty special special thing to do. So yeah, I love diving, running, gym, anything really. A bit of cycling. I'm not very good at cycling though, to be honest. I hate clipping in and out of the. <laughs> I'm not very good at clipping in and out, especially in London with the traffic and stuff. But um, no, I just think you've got to keep, you've got to find your thing. You know, not everyone is going to be like, you know, an elite athlete. But even if it's just going for a walk around the block for 15 minutes, do something, move, get the energy right. going. <laughs> I totally so, agree. That's, 
Massive believer in that, massive believer. But Tim, listen, let me come to the few final questions, if you don't mind. Um, I, I'm really fascinated by how the business is going to evolve and grow for you. I, I've got no doubt at all that you'll have a very successful IPO um, or whatever that looks like in terms of the future. Um, but, you know, when you look back, you you know, you've given some great advice yourself um, as we've been chatting. But can you think of a really good piece of advice that you've had yourself that's, you know, stood you in good stead or maybe stayed with you for a long time? Ooh, uh, great piece of advice. Seven, cool. <laughs> You've probably had loads over the years. It might be from your parents. It could be from, I don't know. Sometimes it's your colleagues, isn't it? Or people that actually, are, you know, just call you out sometimes, you know? Mm, I got a good one. So, yes. When you're first starting out in business, whether it's as an employee or an entrepreneur, uh, pick and choose your battles was was uh, some advice. And I, you know, the people that that irk you a lot, but uh, you going getting into a fight with them would be very costly, and uh, for you, especially where you are in your career and everything, and so. Early on, the advice was to uh, uh, let things resolve themselves and you'd be surprised how fast things change or people move on. And that has definitely been uh, very valuable to us. Anything you think, okay, don't be a hothead, basically, is what I'm getting at. The minute you think, like, oh, the only way I can, you know, this is really bothering me. The only way I can resolve it is, you know, to get in some kind of conflict calm down take some breaths wait six months it probably resolves itself in two if you six it'll be surprising it's just amazing how fast people move on or things change and move on naturally naturally so don't take the bait don't go don't be as quick to get in a conflict i i would say that goes legal issues too i mean almost everybody i've ever spoken to that's gotten into legal action like it was the right thing to do and i was very passionate at the time two years later because <laughs> these things drag on forever i don't know why i ever got involved in this the worst yeah. decision i've ever made sort of thing so it's one of the things i do like about the uk it's less litigious than obviously the u.s and they do that by keeping the the cost of litigation so high um and then, you know, the argument is, well, you know, that's restricting some people's rights to get to, into the courtroom. It's like, no, but at the end of the day, they're probably doing them a huge favor because, you know, what you thought you were passionate about in that, that you know, instance will move on naturally. And then you didn't suck yourself into, uh, you know, a multi-year uh, battle that was going to drain your creativity and your ability to do something more important with your life. Mm. Yeah, no, that is really good advice. I think it becomes with a bit of age as well, right, Tim? A bit of maturity. Don't sweat the small things. And uh, yeah, I stoicism think, uh... is the other word for it. You know, to be stoic <laughs> is to be a great leader. So yeah, practice stoicism. I can tell you've been in the UK a while, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And Tim, you know, if you could think about this year, um, you know, if if you were thinking of describing this year for you in one word. Can you think what that word would be and, and why? Uh, I mean, pivotal, I would say. It's been pivotal because I 
I moved from Singapore back to the UK, but bought a house and renovated it to everything I always wanted from all my travels. And the people who have seen the house, they reminds them of a boutique hotel. And I say, that's the highest compliment I can get because <laughs> it's what I know and it was what I was aiming for. Uh, so yeah, I, I think pivotal because it, it took me from, you know, this 24 seven living in Singapore, doing a road show uh, through the night through started at 11 PM, went to 4 AM uh, to back into the U UK where I can uh, is now as we're still private company growing at this amazing uh, pace uh, pivot to to more of a work life balance this year. Now settling into you know a, a house that is made custom in every way I want. It's really allowed me to focus on what's most important for the next uh, uh, chapter. Yeah, fantastic. No, and congratulations, Tim. See, we could have met in Singapore. We could have met in London. So next time we need to get together face to face, don't we, rather than rather than on Zoom. But yeah, that's great to hear. And um, Tim, before I ask my final question, where can people find you? I know you're big on social media and that's either as, as kind of the company hotel planner or yourself personally. How can people hook up with you, Tim? Uh, LinkedIn or Twitter, and the two social medias I actually check. Uh, I think I check Twitter a bit more than I do LinkedIn, um, only because LinkedIn has so much spam. Um, please, Microsoft, if you're listening to this, do something about your LinkedIn spam. <laughs> if you get a DM <laughs> on Twitter, you know the person actually wants to talk to you and knows you, or, or it's an important DM. If you get direct message on LinkedIn, it's just asking you if you want to outsource tech um, or buy paper or something. I don't so much spam. It's ridiculous. And obviously that person put no thought into it because we've never outsourced our tech in 20 years. Our company, why would we outsource it now? Come on. Like stop sending you with that three times a day. Anyways, there's your feedback. <laughs> okay, great. Well, we can track you down. We can track you down on Twitter, LinkedIn. Of course, um, you know, they, we'll put all the links in the show notes as well so people can check out the business and obviously, hopefully, make some bookings, right? We want some want some business as well. Um, so, Tim, the podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant. What does it that mean to you? You know, I, I, I think it lived up to our expectations for me, you know, um, I mean, it's a deep dive into your personal life and how it affects your business. Uh, I, I've done quite a few of these and I don't think it's ever been that uh, um, deep as this interview has gone. So yes, you know, brave to, to have, you know, personal and business conversations that are, uh, you know, this detailed and, uh, and bold, of course, you know, having uh, anything that uh, releases this kind of intimate information and, and secrets of, of these kind of, well, I don't say secrets, but uh, uh, advice like this is definitely bold. Um, and hopefully something I said was brilliant. I don't know. <laughs> fantastic now honestly tim it has been an absolute pleasure having you on thank you so much and i can't wait to see the next part of the journey for you but good luck with everything really appreciate it thank you have a good one i really hope you've enjoyed brave bold brilliant don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends and if you've enjoyed listening i'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review 